From Advisory Board, we're bringing you a radio advisory, your weekly download on how to untangle healthcare's most pressing challenges. My name is Rachel Woods. You can call me Ray. Last week, we released the first part of our series on what CEOs need to know in 2024. And we talked about the snapshot of industry performance and how we're seeing declining quality at the same time as increasing spend. And we also talked about how purchasers are responding. You might think that those challenges are enough for the C-suite to tackle in 2024, but I am sorry to say you would be wrong. Even as executives battle all of those near-term challenges, the tectonic plates of healthcare are shifting, and we are watching as seismic shifts threaten to change where care is delivered, who actually delivers it, and what that care is, and how we finance it. So I've invited back our three advisory board experts, Natalie Treves, Priyanka Pai, and Sharon Yuen. Priyanka, Sharon, Natalie, back for more. I guess you're back for more because I made you come back right away. Yes. You're just so fun. We have to hang out. I'll take that as a win. But the truth is, is that y'all had just too much to say. And we needed to come back for, for more kind of immediately. And and so let's reflect on that for a second. So last week, we really focused on what we think the future of healthcare could look like. There were all these shifts happening, but we stopped at the first big shift, which was all about where care is being delivered. Reminder to check out that episode if you haven't done that already. What are the other two seismic kind of paradigm level shifts that we need to be focused on? The two other paradigm shifts we really want to hit on today are who delivers care and then ultimately how do we pay for that care? Hmm. Let me admit that we've actually already talked a lot about both of these topics on Radio Advisory. If I reflect on at least the episodes that we did in 2023, right, we had to talk a lot about AI, for example, because of the rise of generative AI and chat GPT. And I feel like it's this kind of perfect storm of the rise of this new innovation and in technology at the same time that the industry's workforce challenges persist. Again, roll the tape forward for me. What do we envision the end state to be in terms of who is delivering care and the role that AI plays in that? So I think we've had a labor obsession in healthcare where we always are throwing more staff at problems. And that is how we solve problems in healthcare. And we know that today that that is untenable and looking to the future, that's impossible when we think about the pipeline. The future we're heading towards is not just one where technology is integrated into workflows and working with the care team, but one where we really dig into what is the role that only a human should do and then push as much as possible to the to technology. And so making care teams actually dependent on technology, dare I say a complement to technology so that they are really only doing what a human should do. I'm going to ask a bold follow-up. Clinicians as the complement to technology. So could we have called this paradigm shift not who is delivering care, but, but what is delivering care? AI is not sentient, Rachel. I think I would I'd probably say who and what are delivering care, right? Because these should be in complement with each other. Clinicians can do a lot of things. And especially when we think about nurses in particular, that's the catch-all in healthcare. 
And what we really need to do is scope their role. That is what we mean when we say clinicians will be a complement to technology. It's not mm. that they are, you know, playing second fiddle. It's that technology should be doing so much for them and they are very focused in their role. I can feel the blood pressure of our listeners kind of coming down as you as you kind of caveated that that end state. And I think the reason why this is something that sparks a lot of questions, sparks a lot of fear, is because there's still more questions than answers when it comes to actually embedding AI in care delivery. I don't think anyone would disagree with the idea that technology needs to enable the care team. Yes. But like that needs to happen as fast as humanly possible, or it's happening in cases already. Uh, and we've talked a lot about that on on the podcast and how to kind of nail some of the basics and the the essentials. But let's talk about the executive role, the leader's role, when it comes to embedding AI in care delivery, when it comes to moving us towards this future of the tech-enabled care team, what are health leaders still missing? I, I think, you know, we've talked about what are the tasks. You mentioned that. I think the things that leaders really need to be paying attention to, in addition to the role mix or the task mix, is training and compensation, right? So where does learning actually happen for clinicians as we move to this tech-dependent future? Um, you know, I think a lot about how medical education happens, and it is, a, you know, an apprenticeship model, right? Where you go, you watch a lot of things, you experience mass quantities of the same event over and over so that you're seeing everything as you train up in your role. Um, if we are shifting more and more pieces of that to technology, how does that experiential learning happen and how do we shift that? I think what Natalie said around compensation probably is the one that perks everyone's ears. And I think the one thing is we probably are going to see an acceleration of trends that are already occurring. A lot of this isn't new. It didn't start with AI. We were already asking physicians and clinicians to do more outside of the direct patient encounter for years now. Just think about in-basket messages. We adopted that technology. We asked clinicians to do more. So we might mm -hmm. see this acceleration and kind of this push away from productivity-based compensation to new models that we've already had been whispering and talking about. Ray, I know you've talked about a while when you talked about like medical group compensation and things like that. Oh, you're giving me a blast from the past. Shout out yes. to my old research, Priyanka. Yes. And so I think, um, I think, I think those conversations are going to hopefully start again. And I think those are conversations that we never really got to have. And hopefully now we get to have. And, and let's be honest, these are the harder conversations to have, right? Where folks Absolutely. focused on last year was the task mix. Who does what? How much time does it take? What do we stop doing? Good. This is stuff that we want folks to do. But what you're describing is how technology will, fundamental, will fundamentally change roles and the difficult decisions that very real leaders will need to make in terms of not just who does what, but to Natalie's point, where the learning happens. And Priyanka, to your point, in, in terms of how we actually value and compensate that work, what I did not hear you say, and I think what we're comfortable saying, is that technology is not going to replace humans. That's not the future of healthcare. Are we right? Absolutely. Not replacing humans, just making them better at what they want to be doing. Yes, and just changing their, their roles. A lot of our focus on the future is really about AI and the workforce, but I want to nod to the fact that there are other impacts that we are expecting AI to have. 
what are the kind of intended benefits? Maybe what are the unintended risks that we need to anticipate as we think about the future of technology in our world? I think we already know that AI often perpetuates existing biases. And that doesn't even, that includes kind of perpetuating existing industry challenges that we've already had. And so I think those challenges are going to become more mm. and things we should be paying attention to at a bigger level. I think one, the have and have nots. So as we see wealthier organizations invest in AI earlier, how is that going to skew data sets? You know, that AMC is investing a lot, we're going to have more AMC data that might not be yeah. representative for other health systems. Will we see wealthier organizations become even more efficient? And then how does that then have ripple effects on the clinician level? Something to add here is the, that there's the risk of replicating these existing challenges and inequities that already exist throughout mm -hmm. the healthcare ecosystem. One thing that comes to mind is the fact that you could be training models with data sets that don't actually adequately represent the patient populations you want to serve, and that might inadvertently reinforce these health inequities we're concerned about. And I just, I think about the business um, impacts of just changing dynamics in terms of who has potentially new power or changing contracting. So are we relying more on vendors as we have to mine through data and augment our care teams? Does that shift who all is involved and how you know, the healthcare system runs? And do they have more touch points into patient care and, and kind of influencing patient pathways, right? There's a lot of, op of doors that this opens to who is involved in patient care decisions. So clearly a lot of risks, but I, I want to be clear, none of us are saying that opting out is an option. Opting out is not an option when it comes to technology. It's not an option when it comes to artificial intelligence or when it comes to generative AI specifically. AI is here. It is here to stay. It's going to be part of our future. So I feel like instead, the right question to ask is how do our listeners, how do real health leaders anticipate, maybe even mitigate some of the risks that you just named? What do you want our, our listeners to be watching for when it comes to this transformation of the care team and in who and what is delivering care? I think it's thinking about AI and some of these technology adoptions as different from your tried and true mm. technology adoptions you might have been doing a year or two ago and thinking about the specific challenges that are going to be coming up so it's not just the change management, it's not just the workflow, it's actually, I think, taking the time to prepare patients and clinicians and the staff to adopt these new technologies in a way that we haven't spent time before. Yeah, I think it's actually doing the hard work and looking at the data management and the governance. So we ha don't have huge headlines around data bias and bias and privacy and liability. And I think it's, I think it's those things. I think it's the infrastructure, the underground work that needs to get done. Yeah, this is the time to move out of the silos and into the holistic, let's take a look at our entire technology infrastructure and how it fits mm. together as an organization. This is also a good time to remind health leaders that it's easy to think of the future of healthcare as the sexy stuff. But your role is actually maybe in the minutia, right? It's in the details. It's in the the governance. It's in how do we get out of our silos. It's in the work that it's going to take to make sure that this is not something that just happens to you and all those risks you named are, become realities, but in something that actually becomes a viable, positive path for the future. We'll be right back with more radio advisory after this short break.
Last fall, healthcare leaders gathered for an interactive roundtable dedicated to improving detection of HEGRCM, a complex cardiac disease that is difficult to diagnose before it becomes advanced. Click the link in this episode's show notes to learn the key takeaways from Advisory Board's roundtable discussion that physicians and health system leaders can use to improve the detection of ATTRCM and other underdiagnosed diseases. I want us to turn to this last seismic shift, uh, which is all about how we pay for care. The actual kind of treatments that we're we're giving to patients and the economics behind it. And this reminds me of another big topic that we talked about a lot on the podcast last year, which is drugs, right? Those high-cost drugs, those ultra-high-cost drugs. I am guessing you are going to tell me that this is the most important thing to be focused on in 2024, or is my own anxiety coming out for, for all of you right now? So I know that you're anxious about drugs, but honestly, it's not just drugs. It's a much larger trend we need to be paying attention to. And I know Advisory Board adds always new words to our lexicon, but there's (laughs) a new era that I want us to be paying attention to called bespoke care. So we think of bespoke care as a set of innovation and treatments, diagnostics, technology that are actively tailored by a specialized provider or set of specialized providers, rather, to individual patients. And I think there's a few things that are important to think about here. So the active element of the tailoring. So someone is doing it. It's not just that it's automatically personalized. Um, A lot of different providers and specialists and life sciences companies and payer care managers need to come together to make this work. So it's very complex. Um, And it can happen over a longer period of time. So we are shifting out of our very neat and clean kind of episodic care that will still happen. But this bigger portfolio Mm. of what we're calling bespoke care is all of this personalization that happens on this longer time horizon. And and this sounds expensive, right? We're using the word bespoke and not just personalized, not just kind of customized uh, or tailored care. And, And the word bespoke for me always sparks it makes me think about fashion it makes me think about a bespoke gown a bespoke suit right and that's a lot more expensive it takes a lot more time it takes a lot more tailoring in a different way right um than if i'm just going to pick something off the rack i'm guessing you're going to tell me that all of that personalization and tailoring is good for clinical outcomes but that also means a big shift in in how the heck we we pay for it how will our business change if it is defined by a shift from episodic procedural to bespoke care? Well, I, I think the outcomes part is important to keep in mind here, right? So when we think about, you know, to go back to fashion, you think about a bespoke suit, that's going to be a higher quality. It's going to last longer. There's an argument to be made that you might actually ultimately in the long run, spend less by pursuing that because you're going to have that better quality outcome, right, in the the suit performance. Um, And so it's worth that investment. It's just a question of, can you make that investment all at once? Who is the one fronting that? And how do we extrapolate what you're getting out of that to the right organizations and individuals? 
So far, this is not giving me any less anxiety, <laughs> um, in part because we're still talking about things that are very, very expensive, but also because we are just talking about something that is very different from the way that today's healthcare system is structured, right? In last week's episode, we talked about how healthcare is historically built around hospitals. Well, healthcare is also historically built around procedures, right? Um how is the business going to change if that's actually no longer the case? We can't just think about kind of discrete episode over episode. Yeah, when you compare them, there's a couple or a few ways that I think they look, that bespoke care looks different from our kind of legacy episodic procedure-based infrastructure. So the delivery of the services and the treatments and the wraparound care that goes on around it around it is going to be much more extensive. There's a lot more options. You're going to have to manage patients over time. The The way that we manage um, costs in, in episodic procedures versus this world of bespoke care is going to look different because the comparison of cost and quality is going to be harder, right? If we're talking about procedures that are meant for as many people as possible and are pretty standardized, that's easy to look across all the surgeons and see how much does it cost and what are their quality scores and how many surgeries have they per performed, right? When we think about bespoke care, that's personalized. So how are you comparing exactly each of these individuals? Um, and how are we going to even estimate the costs when there's so many different intricacies to how drugs are paid for and financed? Um, and then I think that's the big bucket, right, is over time, right? We are not talking about a 30-day time horizon here to figure out the costs mm -hmm. associated with everything in that episode, we could be talking about five years, 10 years longer. So it's a huge time horizon to think about what are all the payments inside of that and who needs to bear them. And moving to a healthcare business that is defined by drugs, that's defined by this bespoke care, that's going to impact other strategies that our very listeners, our, our health leaders have, right? The one that comes to mind for me, based on what you just said, Natalie, is all of the work that we've done in things like value-based care and care variation reduction, those are not fit for a world of bespoke care and drugs. They're fit for a world based on procedures. And I got to say, this is perhaps the paradigm shift that, at least in the conversations that I have with health leaders, this is the one that the industry is the least prepared for? Is that kind of the temperature that you're getting? At least when I reflect on the other big shifts we've been talking about. Definitely. And I think the way that stakeholders rea are reacting today is not necessarily enough. I think first off, we're seeing purchasers really turn to old tools, things that have worked historically like formulary exclusions and utilization management. But as we move forward, we're going to see that that just won't be enough. And we're going to see a lot more experimentation for instance, um, we're seeing some large PBMs actually start to offer these carve-out models for specific cell and gene therapies. And one that comes to mind is Express Scripts Embark Benefit Protection Program, which helps protect against the cost of cell and gene therapies for an additional per member per month charge. And that actually doesn't add on any extra out-of-pocket costs to the patients. So that could be a very mm -hmm. attractive sell. And I completely agree with you. We have to see more experimentation, more innovation. We have to accept that while we can turn to a lot of old tools, they will also not be enough to meet this kind of dramatic change that we're talking about um, when it comes to the way that we deliver care, what that care actually is, and of course, how we pay for it. 
a repeating theme that we've talked about across the last two episodes is that while, yes, of course, we need to roll the tape forward, we need to look at what the future of healthcare may be, whether that end state is neither good nor bad, but what all executives need to do is look at and anticipate the consequences that those changes may have. What are those ripple effects that we need to make sure executives are paying attention to when it comes to bespoke care and an industry defined by drugs? You know, I think it really, it's not that, it's not that complicated in that it really just exacerbates a lot of the evergreen challenges that we have, right? Hmm. We have already got, you know, two-tiered or multi-tiered patient access. A lot of where you work influences um, what your insurance coverage looks like and how generous it is. And so what your access is or where you live influences what the infrastructure um, that's available for you is. Payment transformation, the shift to value, that is not something the industry has had a lot of ease with. And um, consolidation being something that's a big force in the industry. Those are things that exist. And when we layer this shift to bespoke care and all the forces around that, it makes some of this harder, right? Your employers are going to be making very specific targeted decisions about exactly which drugs, you know, as Sharon talked about, which PBM, um, you know, specialized carve out model they're going with. That's going to influence what patient access looks like. Um, which providers invest in which, what infrastructure that they're prepared to deliver different treatments is going to affect patient and, um, patient access. You're clearly an optimist because you said it's a good thing that it's just all of our existing problems. <laughs> the pessimist in me uh, has to, of course, name the fact that you're talking about existing challenges that we haven't been able to solve that could potentially get get worse. But I wonder if the more actionable guidance we can give to our listeners is to tell them what they should be focused on in their market. I feel like a lot of the conversation is about what's happening at the national level, right? This huge pipeline of drugs, the cost of these drugs, which we know we we can't look at as one big behemoth, but what should be leaders be watching for that's more specific to them when it comes to their progress and and, and what they should be focused on when it comes to this path towards bespoke care? In my opinion, it's employer coverage decisions because those are those decisions today are going to be the defining precedent for the industry's adoption of mm. bespoke innovation. And employers are going to have to weigh a lot of different things. They're going to have to weigh the cost pressures while also trying to minimize employee disruption. And of course, these coverage decisions are going to vary greatly from employer to employer. And again, like most of healthcare, everything is intertwined. And so those coverage decisions are going to depend on what health plans do, what PBMs do, what life sciences firms do. Ah, so we need to watch the employers. That is not a stakeholder that we typically name as being at the front of an executive's to-do list uh, when it comes to watching what can happen next. And, And that's a good reminder for me that over the course of the last two conversations, we've really framed these episodes around the perspective of the CEO, the executive, what they need to learn, what they need to watch, what they need to do. But you're reminding me that there are a lot of other stakeholders that are going to be impacted by the future of healthcare and that have a responsibility, right, to shape the future. And the future might look different for different stakeholders. So if all of the tectonic plates of healthcare seem to be shifting beneath us, What responsibilities do different stakeholders have in 2024? 
So, Ray, you actually just reminded me we should be talking about the players that we're not always thinking about, and that's employers and digital health. They need to focus on setting their high-level priorities, and two that I'd especially like to call out is that the fact that employers have to decide standards for the scope of covered healthcare services, care access, and consumer Mm. autonomy. In digital health, they have to focus technology and service offerings on these unmet, pervasive population care and team workflow needs. I think there's also a big role to play in coordinating patient care across time. You know, we've talked about time horizon being a really important part of bespoke care. Um, and we've talked about the ecosystems coming together to manage patients in a population. Both plans and medical groups are going to have to play a big role in working together to manage those patients on their journeys and communicating that information with each other and with other stakeholders. And of course, we can't forget about health systems and life sciences companies. I think for them, it's going to be about protecting access. I think there's the risk that given everything we talked about, whether it's care teams, ecosystem-based care, the new emerging drug pipeline, you can be overly focused on those internal priorities. But what are you thinking bringing it back to the patient? You know, how mm-hmm. are you ensuring you're protecting access in this time where I think that can definitely fall through the cracks? And Priyanka, I love the phrase of being overly focused on internal priorities, because I think that's actually the through line of all of these is the shift we need to make as an industry. We think about these big paradigm changes is moving from the laser focus internally on our own organization's priorities to working together Mm. um, across all these stakeholders to figure out how to make this work as these tectonic shifts are happening, right? So we have to collectively play our roles in setting priorities, coordinating patient care longitudinally, and protecting access, right? That all has Mm. to work together. Wow. No small feat for 2024, but Priyanka, Sharon, Natalie, thank you so much for coming on Radio Advisory. Thanks, Ray. Thanks for giving us so much time. (laughs) So much time. I hope you heard that you do have a responsibility for the future of healthcare and to shape how that future will impact your organization. But you don't have to do it alone. In fact, you shouldn't do it alone because even though we talked about some individual but dramatic changes in healthcare, they're not going to impact just one organization or even just one stakeholder. They're going to have impacts on all of us, and not just all of us in healthcare business. It's going to impact patients as well. That's why we're going to keep talking about these topics on Radio Advisory in 2024. Not just the topics, but how different stakeholders, how different leaders, how different players in healthcare can make positive change towards the future. Because your action steps matter here. But remember... As always, we're here to help. Next week on Radio Advisory. The overarching take that we have that we're running at from the research perspective is that we think hospitals and health systems need to shrink in order to grow. You can hear more from us every Tuesday, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like Radio Advisory, please share it with your networks. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and leave a rating and a review. Radio Advisory is a production of Advisory Board. This episode was produced by me, Ray Woods, as well as Abby Burns, Kristen Myers, and Atticus Rosh. The episode was edited by Katie Anderson, with technical support provided by Dan Tyag, Chris Phelps, 
and Joe Schramm. Additional support was provided by Carson Sisk, Leanne Elston, and Aaron Collins. Thanks for listening. Guys. No, no, I know. I'm sorry. I was going to talk and then I didn't. (laughs) Did you know that you can partner with Advisory Board on content and events? Our sponsorship opportunities get your brand in front of your target audiences in healthcare. With a network of over 4,500 organizations, your customers are our members. Work with us to co-create written deliverables, sponsor virtual or in-person events, license content for your own channels, and more. Visit advisory.com forward slash sponsorship to learn more or follow the link in our show notes.